Welcome to Change the Narrative. I'm your host, J.D. Fuller, an African-American, licensed psychotherapist, professor, diversity coach, consultant, and author. We talk about the isms. We talk about the phobias, anything that marginalizes and oppresses. Everything we are not and everything we are is because of fear. Through a mental health lens, we'll have difficult conversations with celebrity guests, political activists, and everyone in between. Our mind will tell us whatever we want to believe, but the truth lives in the body, and that's where change occurs. Are you ready to change the narrative? Welcome. Welcome to Change the Narrative with J.D. Fuller. Thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. And also your flexibility. You deserve an award for that. Thank you for not taking it personally and just working with me, man. Sometimes the left doesn't know what the right hand is doing. Life happens. <laughs> so I appreciate that as well. I hear that. We all have to be really flexible these days. It's a necessity. I appreciate when people know that as well. Um, I want to start off by learning a little bit more about your background. Yeah. How did you find your way? Where are you from, first of all? And how did you find your way to mental health? Yeah, so I was born in Shanghai, China. And I immigrated to the U.S. when I was five, and I grew up in Ann Arbor, Michigan. I found my way to mental health in part because I've always just been super curious about the mind and how psychology works. And I was a psychology undergrad and, you know, went to grad school from there. But also as a way to kind of better understand myself and uh, my family, I think a lot of therapists find their way into this field as a way to, you know, better understand and heal their own attachment and their own traumas. If they're not honest about that, that's a problem. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about how your history, your experience of immigration um, and basically that journey on psychology impacts your parenting or has impacted your parenting. Oh, Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I, I mean, I had a lot of attachment disruptions growing up where my parents left me in the care of my grandparents to immigrate to the U.S. And then I left my grandparents who were the only caregivers that I had memory of to immigrate to the U.S. to join my parents. And all of those kind of attachment disruptions left me feeling really anxious and insecure and not really knowing what to do with myself as a young child. And I think all of that certainly impacted the way that I viewed relationships and safety and attachment and also really drove my desire to learn more so I can both heal myself and others. And so, you know, oftentimes when, when you've had that type of experience in your background, it comes out in your parenting as mm. being overly attached and a codependent way of parenting. How have you managed that and sort of bargained with yourself around that? Yeah, yeah. Oh, this is the second part of the question that I didn't answer. Sorry about that. <laughs> I feel like um, it's impacted my parenting in a really positive way and that I have approached parenting so intentionally. You know, I, I okay. always kind of figured that my desire to have kids was rooted in like um, repetition, compulsion, wanting to like, you know, heal the past and provide a different experience for my children. Um, but then I was also really intentional in that I got a doctorate in school and child clinical psychology and really learned some valuable skills and information about you know, child development and child psychology. But I think the most important element, you know, both for myself and for you know any parent, is that the more we're able to regulate ourselves and the more we're able to approach these you know, ruptures and things that happen in the work of parenting 
patience and calmness, the better the parenting actually becomes. And, you know, it's the process, not each individual incident that happens. And so I have found that the less anxiety and tension that I really overfocus on parenting, the better my kids are and feel and the, you know, healthier we all are. So I'm going to need you to repeat that because that is the thing I say to parents most. The part about parenting with anxiety, please just repeat that again. The more you can regulate yourself and feel whole and nourished and satisfied on your own, and the more you can sort of let your kids show you who they are and become who they are with well, some guidance, but pretty minimal, <laughs> the better yeah. everyone is. Children, yourself, yeah. the family unit. There's so much more ease when we can trust each other and ourselves. And that's a challenge when you've had, you know, the trauma of immigration. Yeah. That's that's I hear so many stories and I'm really doing a lot of work with clients. Um, whose families have immigrated. And I'm just noticing so much that yeah. comes up with that. And attachment is one because the the scenario is somebody watches the kids, a parent or both parents go, um, set up the house and, and work and then bring people over. And that separation, I mean, talk about how that impacts mental health. I think it should be normalized more. Yeah. I mean, you know, the I, I always say every immigration story is a trauma story. Because there is inherently the need to leave your community, your language, your culture, everything that you know that's familiar in pursuit of something different and hopefully better. Generally, people don't leave situations that are really working for them. And so the decision to leave it's itself huge, but then having to make your home in a whole new environment, I mean, that is inherently traumatic. And for many immigrants, the the priority is survival. They're thinking about how to put food on the table, how to pay the bills, how to make ends meet. And they're providing in very tangible ways, but also probably really stressed out and maybe not as emotionally available or, you know, able to invest in other ways in their families and their children. And so, you know, children of immigrants really grow up with that framework and, you know, having to make up for some of that in different ways. Um, and, that can cause a whole bunch of adaptations as these children become adults and how they view relationships and a productivity and success and hustle and how they prioritize their time based on what was modeled for them. That's so amazingly said. And I want to add one piece to that that I've, mm-hmm. I've seen as well, which is, you know, the first generation has a challenge between assimilation and integration. And oftentimes what I see is they become over-Americanized, if you will, and it becomes a challenge for the parents because it appears to be a loss of self, which is kind of like everything you fought for to get your children here, they might be, or the fear of leaving the part of the story behind. And I think that's equally traumatic. Yeah, yeah. It can be so confusing for children of immigrants because they grow up like embodying these Western values that the parents really held in such high regard. And then they're told, well, you're too white now. You're too, you're too American. Like you're, you're embodying these elements that we don't actually want you to embody, even though we raised you in this way. And so that biculturalism yes. and, and being able to retain elements of, 
you know, home culture as well as assimilating to dominant culture is definitely a struggle. And I think, you know, it's an individual and personal journey for everybody. I already can tell that we're going to need to find a time to do this again in the future because <laughs> I could just keep going on this, but I'm going to move on. I find there's, there's it so, so much fascinating. Here. Yeah, absolutely. And, and uh, there's so much to cover when you talk about that. I want to talk about something that we've all been saying lately and get your perspective on what it means to you, which is decolonizing mental health. What does that mean to you? I think it means to really examine the history and underlying assumptions of psychology as a field, of mental health as a field, and really acknowledging that so much of the foundational pieces of this field is based on Eurocentric, white, middle-class people and their problems. And it's developed by, you know, old white guys. And a lot of that stuff doesn't apply to people of the global majority, people who don't have the privilege and access that some of these ideas and theories are based upon. And it doesn't integrate the diverse and rich cultural histories that people of the global majority come with. And it certainly doesn't look at the impacts of systemic oppression and just different levels of power that we are all, you know, operating under in a society. And so decolonizing mental health is just sort of getting to the roots of what traditional Western psychology looks like and understanding that contextual factors really matter and reconnecting and reestablishing, you know, people to elements of um, their own ancestral ways of healing and other, you know, different elements of mental health and psychology that deviate from the Western white norm. You know, it always feels um, when I have these conversations or I'm doing a training or teaching, it always feels like I am rejecting, you know, the Eurocentric lens when instead I'm trying to normalize the idea of a multicultural lens that is equally clinical and that it should not be separated as an afterthought. And it's so right. much resistance when it comes to that idea, right? What's that yeah. about? I think we know, but I'd like to hear you I, say it. <laughs> uh, white supremacy, <laughs> the white supremacy okay. delusion, right? Like it's really, really hard when people who are used to historically being centered are decentered, even if they're not mm. truly being decentered or just trying to, you know, expand the container to also center other people. It feels scary. It feels there's a fragility to it and that mm -hmm. causes a lot of defensiveness and shame responses and backlash. And, you know, you see it so much in everything <laughs> and the ways that everything. people, everything, everything. Yeah. The ways that people personalize yeah. it when like, it's not, it's not personal. None of this is personal. Right. You know, that brings up for me that um, the idea that, Fragility, the word in and of itself, you know, and, and, and the writing about it, it comes off as such a delicate, you know, wholesome response. And I, I literally can't, I've said this before, I'll say it again. I've literally never seen anything more aggressive in my life than white <laughs> fragility. That's yeah, not delicate <laughs> at all. I mean, it's tearful, but it's, I mean, it's violent. It's aggressive. It's a weaponization. Yeah of one's shame response, of their tears, of this strong emotional defenses that come up when 
you know, your existential fear is activated. But what is really mind boggling is that, you know, people who fall into these fragility responses, you're experiencing this like in this moment about this one thing. Whereas people of the global majority are experiencing this constantly about everything. And it is just yes. the inability to decenter oneself that drives so much of this. And that is just like so aggravating for the rest of us. And we're supposed to have patience with it and tolerate our own racial trauma at the same time. And when people yeah. tell me, you know, they're tired of, oh, this is so overwhelming. I can't even believe what's coming out of their mouths. <laughs> it's, it's really off-putting. It's like so overwhelming for it you? Want to really? These, you know, for you? This yeah. one time? Yeah. Kind of hard to believe, right? Yeah. I'm with you on that. You yeah. wrote something I mean, on I your... Think, um, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. Add. Go oh. ahead, add. Oh, I, I was just going to say that, you know, I, I think the way that it manifests and the, the like shrouds of whiteness really makes it feel so personal the, the people are like you are attacking me and it's like no no one's attacking you like if you can separate yourself from whiteness as an identity like marker you are so much more than your whiteness i'm just attacking the whiteness and the white supremacy delusion mm-hmm. parts that you embody that's like not just you it's everybody it's the system it's the process it's how our entire society is designed that's what i'm attacking so the the delusion itself is what makes it feel so personal when you say that i want to respond with something that that feels like just so aligned with that which is the individualistic nature of a eurocentric mentality yes. is how it becomes personal when in fact i'm starting to believe it's a deeper strategy to use this fragility in a way so that we don't look at the system. We're too distracted trying to manage the individual's responses versus backing off because someone, people are more offended. And we've said this many a times on the show. People are more offended by being called a racist than they are about racism. And that, that's just alarming when I say that aloud each and every time. Right. Yeah. You know, uh, someone once, you know, I think it was a, a comment on one of my videos that when I described a, you know, a fragility incident where someone said, like, you know, it's possible that this was a performance, right? There was it was a deliberate, intentional, like weaponization of fragility as kind of a narcissistic protest that like, mm-hmm. you know, people can weaponize it. Yeah. I mean, that made so much sense, but that was also just so disheartening to me. <laughs> like, oh gosh, it's so layered. It's yeah. so layered. It's so layered. And with that, I'm going to go to your website and ask yeah. you what you meant by something you have on there. Sure. You have, let me find where I wrote it. So what do you mean when you say you translate science and theory into stackable applications for liberated, intentional lives? And how does that manifest into one's authentic self? Yeah. I mean, I think there's so much that's fascinating about, you know, psychological research. And I'm still like science data nerd, even though I like (laughs) dunk on Western psychology a lot. Like, But there is actually a lot that I have learned and value and appreciate from it. And one of the benefits to having a PhD is that I can interpret research and translate it. 
I do that in my TikToks. I do that, you know, in therapy, in my podcast appearances of just trying to distill down or break down like the dense research into little nuggets that people can take away and apply and understand. And I think these little small pieces over time really build and can help people, you know, small changes to improve their lives, better understand themselves. Got it. Got it. So do you think that, and this has always been my fear with the education on social media has grown. Do you think it's, it's, it's inviting people towards more therapy or making them think when they show up, you know, for one of your videos, that's their therapy session? I sure hope not. <laughs> I try to reiterate in my content anyways that like this is not a replacement for therapy because I don't know you. These are generalizations. Right. These are like tips and, you know, sweeping statements. This is not individualized. It's not an intervention. It's not therapy. So I'm sure it goes both ways, you know, where some people are like, well, I can't afford therapy. It's not accessible to me. So I'll just watch like mental health TikToks and like, it's better than nothing. Whereas other people are like, well, I don't need to go to therapy because I'm all over mental health TikTok. But what I have seen that I've actually really loved and appreciated is how often people bring these TikToks to their therapist. And then they talk about mm, it. You know, that's great. Shared like, oh, I've shared your TikTok. So many of them with my therapist. And we've like, you know, broken down how this applies to my life and ways that I can utilize and apply this. And you know, I love it when my clients bring, you know, TikToks to session and either just like, you know, humor or different like entry points to talking more and expanding deeper about whatever it is that they're going through. Absolutely. Absolutely. My clients have done that too. And I do really appreciate it. But I just always think it's important to say that, Yeah, you know, yeah. sort of this disclaimer. Not a replacement <laughs> for front. therapy. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Um, one of my favorite topics is one that you've talked about, which is transforming shame into guilt. Will you talk about that a little bit? Mm, yeah. Um, I really got into this. I did some training with a shame researcher, Dr. Steve Finn, and he really changed the way that I looked at shame and guilt. You know, it's such a historically like, oh, it's a negative emotions. This is what we think of them. Um, and we don't really talk about the evolutionary adaptive functions of these emotions. Why do we experience them? Are they valuable to our survival in communities? And the answer is yes. And, mm -hmm. you know, in kind of the pop psychology rhetoric, it's like, oh, these are so uncomfortable. Let's get rid of them. But really, like, what can we learn from having these experiences and how can we move through them so we don't get stuck in them? But we also don't right. lose the lesson of whatever sparks these feelings because they are necessary mm -hmm. social cohesive emotions for our survival in groups. Yeah, I love that. And I tend to feel as though shame is a part of, of a deeper realm of emotions people get lost and stuck in. Mm -hmm. And I feel like guilt mm -hmm. has, my experience is guilt has a little bit more levity. It's got a little yep. bit more fluidity. You yeah, can really use guilt as a springboard. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Shame is like it's you know you, you crumble, you implode, you yeah. kind of dissociate, and you just get stuck mm -hmm. in it. But if you're able to crawl out of that shame pit and actually transform that emotion to guilt, like it can motivate apology. It can be activating to make repair and amends. It's what allows us to you know try to do good with our mistakes. 
Right. That'd be, yeah, yeah that's it exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with that so much. And I think the other piece is that shame is so connected to religiosity mm-hmm. that 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 deepens the stuckness because they're, they're, it's so related to what God said or your higher power said it's about. And, and, and that's the stuckness that people find difficult to move out of as well. Yeah. And even the guilt part, you know, when like repentance is such a part of like what you need to do in order to like get back to good, like you get really stuck on kind of the behavioral elements or, you know, what you need to say or do in order to like get rid of this feeling rather than the relational elements, the self-compassion elements and the acceptance. Because a lot of things that people end up being shamed or, you know, feeling guilt for are not things that are necessarily wrong or within their control. They're maybe wrong by some religious doctrines and like historic, you know, worldviews. But in kind of a modern day perspective in understanding the whole self and understanding like, well, where did I learn this and how did I develop all of these feelings about this? We learned that a lot of this stuff is not necessarily bad or like deserving of shame and guilt. Hmm. Yes, exactly. You know, that brings me to another one of yours. Um, I think it was a TikTok and, and another fave of mine. I must say this a hundred times a day, which is thoughts versus feelings. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about that? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think people get confused, right? But it's like, what are you feeling? Well, I feel like I want to punch him in the face. Like, okay, that's not a feeling. <laughs> that is an impulse. That's a, yeah. I mean, thoughts are, yeah, thoughts are what's in our head. These are, these are the little kind of fleeting things that show up of what, like the cognitive elements of our experience. And they are actually the last thing that come online. The first thing that we experience in our body is our physical sensations. And then that informs our emotional feelings. And then we form some thoughts about it. Like, oh, this must mean that I'm unlovable. This means that I need to work until midnight to make up for it. You know, all of these thoughts that we have, they we're, we're so disconnected from our bodies that it's the first thing that we notice or the only thing that we notice, but it's really the last thing to come online. And so I think so much of my work with people is, you know, bottom up, like, okay, you have that thought. Now let's track it back, right? Well, I mean, that's top down, but like eventually get to a point where like, okay, what are you feeling in your body so you can make sense of that and then come to a thought Mm -hmm. at the very Mm -hmm. last part rather than only focusing on the thought and trying to let that be the decision maker. I'm fascinated how many adults I use the feeling chart with. Yeah, yeah, the little (laughs) wheel, it's great. Because my favorite is the faces, you know, the kids' faces. Mm, Yeah, yeah, I like that one And they have a multicultural now, one now, which is great. And I've actually texted it to client because I think part of the reason people get so hung up in their thoughts is they really don't know what feelings are. And I'm fascinated how we we grow through our lives and you know, this disconnection from our bodies manifests in a disconnection from the language and actually the definition, which is pretty amazing. So I love that idea. Of- it's by design in a lot of ways. It's so by design. I really appreciate you saying that. Um, so one of the things that I'm big on is the idea of pulling us all together. And I'm going to give you each of these n- labels or ways to identify us. And uh-huh. I want to know... I've already heard you use one, and I want to know your response to the others. 
So the one that you use that I use all the time is the global majority. Yeah. But then there's also people of color. Uh-huh. And then the the one that, that a lot of people seem to gravitate towards is BIPOC. Uh-huh. Yes. Talk to me about this. I think this has been kind of like language is always evolving. And there's been a lot of, I think, like political elements around the ways that people identify and the language that we use. You know, so like at one point I just said people of color because that was what I was taught, yeah. but then realizing, okay, well, that really um, lumps, you know, Black and Indigenous experience in with other people of color's experiences. And, you know, they're not the same. There's a lot of privilege that other people of color may have experienced, you know, a lot of extra layers of erasure and oppression that Black and Indigenous folks have experienced. So then I started using BIPOC, but then people got really confused. Like, okay, well, BIPOC, you're not BIPOC. BIPOC only applies to Black and Indigenous folks. And like, I was like, oh, I have to like Google this, look this up. And like, it's hard to find consensus around it. Um, You know, so some people say like Black, Indigenous and people of color is like an and between the BI and the POC as a way to like distinguish the unique experiences of Black and Indigenous folks. Um, And now like... I think people of global majority captures a lot of it Love as well, because we're all people of global majority, even though we are underrepresented or marginalized or historically overlooked when it comes to you know, Eurocentric dominant Western society. Yeah. You know, I, 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 I really challenge the word privilege when it comes to people from the global majority. None of us walk around with anything that we have had access to based on the color of our skin. That's the definition of privilege. We may have had more opportunities, a bit more access academically or financially, but it's not the true meaning of privilege. And I I don't like to homogenize that word. I think it needs Mm -hmm. to stand strong with a system of white supremacy. Mm -hmm. And the thing that started to challenge me about BIPOC right away, it came from academia. And Mm -hmm. as the communities of color started to wrap themselves around it, like the white people grasped onto a great way to lump you all together. And I saw so I immediately spat it out and rejected it. And, yeah. and what I love about the global majority is it's so empowering to mm-hmm. us who have not been, you know, historically unified or empowered. And we know the marginalization that exists amongst us. Yeah. We know the challenges yeah. between us. However, we are the global majority. And that's yeah. pretty powerful. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I love that you bring that up because I, I think. Yeah, there is a lot of you know, oppression Olympics within you know, groups of communities of color. And, you know, if you're if you're just like say like, OK, black indigenous are separate. Right. And then it does feel like a, a bit of like who wins the most traumatized award. Right. And it's like, how do you honor like the unique experiences, but then not like really prioritize oppression or like trauma has the only defining qualities of these different groups. Yes. And so, yeah, that's a great point. And, you know, the people of global majority is so empowering because it's like there is power in numbers. There's power in collective, you know, cohesion Mm -hmm. and in working together. And we are collective communities. I mean, that Mm -hmm. is that is the powers that we are collective. And so in realizing that, I think there's some you know, I work with, I, I do a consultation with um, a few Yale black psychologists, females. And, you know, when you're processing, there's so much pain you can feel in the experience of, of being in white spaces. And, and the one thing I like to reflect on is how much cohesion and support we have 
and spaces we create for ourselves. Yep. And that cannot be replaced or overlooked because it comes from a history of collectivism. And I always want to reflect that as an empowerment perspective. Yeah. And like how collectivist values really run consistently through all of our cultures. And we may come from okay. different, you know, cultures within the global majority. But one thing that does really unify us is at least at least a lean or a bend towards collectivist values over individualistic values that more, you know, European Americans tend to embody. I think it's an important nuance for us to continue to hold. I think it's important. So let's jump to all of your social media. You have, we'll get to the social media, but you also have a TEDx, you've been in HuffPost, you've been in BuzzFeed. Tell us all of your social media and also tell us what's next, please. Oh my goodness. The TEDx was a really fun, cool, recent thing that I did. That was always kind of like a life goal of mine. And I felt, you know, so... I was so proud of myself when I when I was able to do that. It's great. Yeah, I mean, I started just kind of making TikToks as a pandemic boredom hobby and it took off and <laughs> um, has opened up so many doors for me. And I've had all of these wonderful opportunities to comment on like media articles. I made content with Headspace, the meditation app, and that was super fun. Cool. And I, yeah, what's next? Me and Dr. Raquel Martin, who is um, a Black psychologist based in Nashville, we have a course that we debuted this fall called Becoming an Anti-Racist and Anti-Oppressive Clinician. And we had three trainings on it. Um, we presented this workshop and it was really well received. It's all you know virtual and we're now in the midst of trying to grow that, you know, of like forming some community around it or, you know, being able to present this in person to various universities or community mental health clinics. That has been really energizing and exciting because this is like our baby that we have made ourselves. Like no one's sponsoring us. It's not like a corporation saying you have to say this or that. Um, so that's been yeah. just super nourishing and empowering for us. And we are really excited to be able to share that. Yeah. And I'm just doing more speaking things around different employee resource groups and organizations as well. And that's also been really fun. You know, I love that y'all are doing the, how to be more of an anti-racist clinician. You know, I've, I've, I got a lot of years on y'all and it's been just feeling like I was out there alone with a handful of others without social media. And so it's very exciting to me as an elder to see this happening and to know that it continues to grow. It really does warm my heart and make me very excited for you all. Well, you know what? We are able to run because you were walking. You know, you paved the way. Like, <laughs> it's such an important thing for us to always remember that no information is brand new. Like, we stand on the shoulders of giants. Like, every single thing that we are sharing, it's because someone before us has paved the way for us to have the safety <laughs> and privilege of being able to share. And then, you know, continuously, you know, for everyone that we are touching as well. And so yeah, there's so much yeah. gratitude, you know, to you for paving that way when it was so much more lonely and isolating and I'm sure scary <laughs> too. It's true. It's true, but it does it does help us continue to find some hope. So it's cool. It's mutual. Yeah. And that's what's yeah. important. Um, so give us the social media handles. Dr. Han Ren on TikTok and Instagram or drhanren.com, my website. 
I also have a group practice um, in Austin, Texas, and we have psychologists who serve people all over Texas. Um, and that's pivotpsychologyatx.com. Okay. How is, uh, before I give you the final word, I just want to talk about these midterms and how oh. how the people of progressive mentality are are dealing in Texas. That that had to be, oh, that had to oh, be a challenge. Yeah. You know, election day always falls on my birthday. Like 2016 oh. when Trump was, it was my birthday too. Oh, that's rough. Oh my that's gosh. Rough. So I really tried so hard to not look at anything that night. Like I just did not want to know the results. And people were texting me and like some information like peeped through and I was like, oh no, better lost. And I felt like so disheartened that I didn't look at any other results. Like I just like I couldn't bring myself to like, you know, process before I thought it was just going to be continuously bad. And it wasn't until a few days later when like, you know, people like I was actually getting that information. I was like, oh, it's not that bad. It's not that bad. Like, I mean, it's, you know, bad in Texas, but it's not surprising in Texas. But like kind of on a right, national true. level of like, OK, you know, we retain the Senate. And there's actually been a lot happening that prevented this red wave from occurring. And that was reassuring and nourishing. And, you know, well, I'm going to do what we can in Texas, but I don't hold my breath here. You know, I, I appreciate that because the reframe is always important. I do think the grief that we felt from, you know, Abrams and Beto not making it was that, was, that those those were two tough ones, I think, oh, for all I of know. us. Oh, I know. Wasn't even are, close. You know? Ugh, that that mm. was the hardest part. I thought it would be closer at least. I know. Yeah. 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 But I appreciate the reframe. I think that's important. Look, Doc, it's been such a pleasure. You are amazing. Oh, thank you so much. It's been so nice to be here. Really thoroughly enjoyed your company and sharing the space with you. You know, I'd love to have another conversation with you in the future and find out what you're up to. Please share share your final thought word. What do you want to leave here on the runway? Hmm. You know, I think I just have this holiday that's coming up. This year, all years, let's really combat the myth of Thanksgiving and challenge what we were told in elementary school about what this holiday actually is and name it for what it is, which is genocidal colonizer celebration. And what does that look like to decolonize or liberate your family's traditions from this historic framework? And what are small things that you can do to um, expand on that? So we are trying to read more indigenous books and look up where are the land that we occupy and just really get more in touch with the roots of this holiday and maybe do less shopping. Oh, yes. Remember, we were in a pandemic two years ago, moving forward. Yep, yep, yep. Thank you again so much. It's been a pleasure. Everybody, check Doc out. Amazing. Appreciate you. Be well. Till next time. Thank you so much. Please be sure to like, subscribe, and follow wherever you get your podcasts. And also, leave us a review. Let us know what you think. Thank you for listening to Change the Narrative with J.D. Fuller.